I'm going to read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. Uh, this is a story about King Saul and younger David. David had already been anointed to become King Saul's successor. Saul became jealous, kind of became a crazy king, and pursued David and wanted to kill him. So David was on the run, and now this reports how David responded and put this mercy of God that we're talking about into practice instead of seeking. Verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep paths along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back inside the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With those words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urge me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. This is the word of the Lord. Why is revenge so rewarding to the movie industry? Now you think of the uh, Liam Neeson in the Taken movies, I will find you and I will kill you. You know, right? Getting revenge on someone who kidnapped a family member. I think of Jason Bourne uh, taking out punitive justice on those who ruined his life. Or if you're old enough to remember this, the Carrie, Stephen King's Carrie movie in 1976 where this teenage girl was being bullied in high school and she sought bloody revenge on, on numerous people in her life. Uh, I don't know, any of Quentin Tarantino's hits at the movie theater seem to be based on revenge? Kill Bill! And how about the blockbuster The Avengers? Revenge is all over the movies, and that's because we like it. 
There's this part of us that, that wants fairness and justice. And some psychologists are agreeing. Some psychologists are now using a term called revenge fantasy. And revenge fantasy, they say, is because we have this feeling that's been suppressed. This feeling they're giving a, a name to is called embitterment. And so we have embitterment feelings based on the fact that, that we're victimized. And, and as victims, we have this sense of wanting to fight back, this sense of fairness. So going to, a, to see a Carrie movie or a Taken movie or a Quentin Tarantino film where there's revenge, where there's justice dealt back, can, it's just a healthy way to vent our revenge fantasy, some psychologists are saying. Okay. But what about when fantasy turns to fact? School shootings. Social media tirades on Facebook. Snarky text messages that you send back to someone because no one else is reading it except them, or so you think. Giving a family member the cold shoulder because they did something that you don't appreciate. Right? These, uh, these revenge fantasies all of a sudden become fact. And, and not just that the movie has been our own lives. The idiot who cut you off on the road. The product manu manufacturer who will not give you a refund. The, the ex who's hard to get along with. The irresponsible sister. All right? Revenge fantasy. And know what? It is real. It's very real. And that's what's at the basis for us wanting to take revenge with our sense of fairness and get it right. So what's, re, so what's so rewarding about that? Why do we run to revenge? Because we feel like we've been the victims of injustice. And I say we feel like because oftentimes those feelings of injustice are just way exaggerated, like the story I told you about me standing in line in, in the bakery, right? I felt so victimized over a cookie. There are real times to be true. There's real times where we are the real victims of real injustice, but what is said today even counts for those times. And so here's my goal today. I believe God's word is guiding us to this reality. That revenge fantasies really are just that, fantasies. Because revenge never works. The Bible says that with revenge, you will never get even. The score will never be settled. And there is never going to be any fairness if we as individuals seek to engage in revenge in our lives. That a counterattack is just going to be counterattacked and, right, and the violence goes on. I, I had a voicemail the other day of, of, a, of a woman in a tirade, and she was yelling, she was screaming at me in this voicemail message. She was, I, I was shaking, listening, it was just a voicemail, telling me that someone had yelled at her and she didn't appreciate it. Yelling at me, telling, right, get it? See, so we're, it, it doesn't stop. But there is a solution. And God gives us that solution. We're going to see it in David today. 
So I want to have some background here from David's experience so you understand how he had truly become a victim of injustice. And then we're going to look at his response to that and see how godly it is and learn some lessons for us and how David trusted his God and how we can trust God too. Okay, so here's a few quick examples of how David became a victim of injustice. And, and there's some background story here. It's in the book of 1 Samuel. You can read it. These are the chapters leading up to chapter 24 that we have for today. So David enters the scene when he was a young boy. He was a shepherd boy. The prophet Samuel came and he anointed David to be the next king of Israel. Right? So David, David wasn't on a campaign. He wasn't out um, looking for votes. God sent the prophet. The prophet anointed him and said, well, like it or not, David, you're going to be the next king after Saul's done on the throne. And so he was anointed. After that, shortly after that, in private, God rejected King Saul for his bad behavior. No one, necessarily, no one else necessarily knew about this. The prophet Samuel knew it. So now you have this scene where David's anointed king, Saul's rejected. You would think that David would become king, right? but God doesn't give those cues or clues yet. All right, next one. David became a, vi a victim of injustice in this way. Um, Saul had, was troubled in spirit, the Bible says, and so David was very skilled at, uh, as a musician. He was skilled at playing the harp. And so uh, Saul asked David to come and play the harp for him, which David did. So David's out to serve this king. David even served the king by being willing to fight the giant Goliath, and he killed him to help the Israelite army and to help the king retain his throne. David did that as a service to his country, to God, and to his king. So David is showing kindness to Saul. That's the point. How does Saul return that kindness? Now, now you have this injustice that's taking place. So here's the next one. David became a victim of injustice because Saul became um, obsessed with perceived injustice, meaning this. David kills Goliath. Who's the national hero? King Saul? Nope. David's a national hero. David becomes a, an instant celebrity. He goes viral. All the people love David. All the people sing his praises. Saul becomes obsessed as this victim of perceived injustice. He becomes very jealous. He becomes, his pride heightens. He becomes paranoid of David. And so what does he try to do? David's playing the harp for Saul. Saul grabs a spear, throws it at David's head. David ducks. David does not pick the spear up and throw it back. He threw a stone to kill Goliath. That was proper. That was God's will. He did not throw a spear to kill Saul because that was not proper. That was not God's will. Now you have David taking a hit, so to speak, for injustice. And by the way, Saul didn't throw just one spear. He threw three that we know of at David while David is serving him playing the harp. All right. Where's Matt? Being a musician can be a very dangerous profession, so be careful over there. Uh, more, more injustice from David, all right? So now, he's, now what David does is, all right, wow, wow, someone throws a spear at you three times. Maybe, maybe I should not play the harp anymore for King Saul, all right? So uh, Saul continues his threats, actually, and so David says, I'm out of here. David had to choose fight or flight. He chose flight, I'm not engaging with this. I'm not getting violent. I'm going to run. So David had a band of men. They were actually a small army. And instead of fighting with them, all he did, right? You heard it from 1 Samuel 24. David fled into the wilderness. He hid in caves. 
And he just tried to run and stay away from Saul to not, not engage the heat of the battle. What did Saul do? Saul pursued him. You heard it. When Saul's intelligence men found out where David was, Saul went after him with, a, with an army of 3,000. Before that time, Saul had actually sent assassins to David's house to kill him. And there was an insider who gave David the information and David left. So you have this, yeah, bad Saul, good David, and now David is fleeing. Uh, how can he do that? Where does, where does this come from? Uh, I, I want to show you in the scriptures, before we go to the actual incident where David's in the back of the cave and Saul comes in, there's a lot we can learn from that, but I want to show you David's heart first. And when you want to see David's heart in the Bible, where do you go? Yeah, you go to the Psalms. So there's two Psalms, at least two, written specifically by David when he was fleeing Saul for his life. Psalm 57, Psalm 142. Listen, to, I'm going to give you some highlights from the song. So David writes these songs. That's what the Psalms are, they're songs. So he's writing songs while he's being pursued and, and someone's trying to kill him, trying to murder him. And he has the whereabouts now to write these songs. So here they are. I'm going to give you highlights first from Psalm 57. Here's what David writes. This is like a journal, right? Like his own diary, and he's writing. He's going to put this to music later. He says, I cry out to God most high. Who is the highest authority in David's life who has a potential to hurt or help him? It's not Saul. Who is it? God. He's saying, God, you are higher than Saul. And so I'm crying out to you because you, God, can take care of Saul better than I can. When you have an enemy threatening you, and you know God, cry to God who is higher than any power, any enemy in your life. God most high, who saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. Who's going to save David from Saul? Is David going to save David from Saul? No. He said, God, you can save me, and you do it by taking care of your business. I am in the midst of lions, He's right, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Injustice can be very real and very painful. God does not give any of us the right to say, God, I'll put up with this much pain and injustice, but when it gets to be this much, I'm going after him. This much, this much, this much. David is saying this is painful. They have fangs. These are dangerous men. This is a dangerous, real situation. He's admitting that. He's telling God, I, I know this is dangerous. I know this is real. But what's his point? He says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Who is David interested even more than, than, than getting rid of Saul? Who is David interested in even more than being interested in David? He's interested in God having the glory, in, in God being exalted over everything. So for David, the solution to the conflict he has with Saul is not, taking care, is not so focused on Saul or David, but focused on God, who is above it all. All right, let your glory be over all the earth. Here, this is interesting. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. There is a chief danger of revenge. When your heart is bent on revenge, 
you are not a free person. When your heart is bent on revenge, you are not the master. You are not in control. Revenge takes control of you. Vengeance takes control of your heart, and you become a prisoner. And you think you're digging a pit to trap someone else, and you end up trapping yourself. That's what those words mean in David's psalm. All right, now, Psalm, uh, the next Psalm, 142. Here's what he says. When my spirit grows faint within me, right? He's saying, this is, God, this is hard work. This has taken a lot out of me. I'm tired. I'm worn out. That's, that happens, okay? My spirit grows faint. It is you who watch over my way. No one is concerned for me. I can't turn to anyone else, God, but I can turn to you. I trust you, God. I know you. I believe in you more than anyone else. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge. See where David's turning here? Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Ah, and there we have it. Can you and I humbly admit that we have enemies who are bigger than we are? That we have enemies who are more skilled than we are. That we have enemies who can really, truly hurt us and say, they can get me. And God, because they can get me, and I have the ability and power to fight back against them, even if I try, God, you're bigger than they are. They're too strong for me, God, but not for you. That's David's point in Psalm 142. So, uh, David, in righteousness and faith, turns to God and puts this on God's plate and says, God, you take care of it. I don't need to take care of Saul. You take care of it. And God will. Like in Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, turn the other cheek. Now, we can hear that and say, ooh, that's, God's pretty soft on evil there. God's pretty soft on sin. I thought he was going to take care of it. God's not soft on evil. He will, at one point or another, take care of evil. Whether it's now or whether it's on Judgment Day, God will take care of it, but he's a slow avenger. God has more patience than you and I do. He's a slow avenger. Multiple places in the Bible say this about God. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. Exodus, Psalms, Joel, Nahum, multiple places in the Bible say that God is slow He is a crockpot of anger, not a microwave. He's slow to anger, and he's abounding in love. God will take care of business, and he'll he'll do it his way. His love is not, his his character is not soft. His way of dealing people is not weak. Love actually is very strong, very powerful. So in Romans 12, we can read this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take, re- take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm just going to say it clearly. The most dangerous thing about taking revenge is that when I do it, I'm sinning against God. When I do it, I'm telling God that I'm better at being God than he is. That I'm going to take care of his business my way. 
And I'm not only sinning against that other person and against my own conscience, I'm sinning against God. God says, it's mine. Leave it to me. It's my business, and I'll take care of it. David knew that. And so what's important is now we see this. We're going to look at David now in the cave and see how that, when David was tempted to get even with revenge, he, he saw that temptation, and he saw the lies that were laced throughout that temptation to get revenge. All right, multiple voices coming to David, do this, go get him, go kill Saul. Multiple voices, David listened to them, acknowledged them, and then shut them down. That's an important process when you're tempted with revenge. Here's a few of those voices that were lies in David's head. First of all, the lie of the voice of human logic. And that lie says, someone gets me, I get them, and then the score is settled. That's, that's a lie. No, it's not settled, because I get them back, and then they're going to get me back, and I'm going to get them back, and we keep, there's never a time where we finally admit that the score is done unless we act in mercy. So that's a lie of human logic, of human reason, that revenge makes sense. To human instinct, it does. In reality, it doesn't make sense at all. David, the lie of misinterpreting God's words. I think this is big in David's case. God had told David, you're going to be king. Right? So, taking those words and twisting them, David could have said, well, obviously, it's time for me to be king now because Saul is off his rocker. Saul's trying to assassinate. He's, he's committing murder. He's, uh, someone has to save the country. we got to... Not just impeach this guy. I gotta, I gotta kill him. I can because God's given me permission. God wants me to be king. That would be over assuming on David's part what God's words had said. God said you'd be king, but he didn't let David know the timing. He could overinterpret God's works. That would be another lie voice, right? Well, in the past. God burned, gave fire and sulfur came down from heaven and burned Sodom and Gomorrah. So God took vengeance. Well, I can do it too. That's misinterpreting God's works. Only God has the right to do that. So David didn't take it in his own hands to take revenge against Saul when Saul was in the cave. And how about the voices of his friends? I think that's a sign of good friends, not bad friends. Good friends are going to rise up to your defense. But good friends are often sincerely misguided. So David's friends who are with him in the cave, David's in the back of the cave with his, with his men. Saul comes in to relieve himself. He's unaware. He's not in fighting mode. His friends say, take him out. This, this is it. This is the moment. You take him out. David had the lying voice of even his close friends that he had to push aside and turn down the volume of these voices. They weren't helpful voices. They were lies of his friends. There's this verse in Job that's very short and very clear, and it says this, Resentment kills a fool. We tend to act in destructive ways when revenge grips our hearts. And what ends up happening is those become self-destructive ways. Case in point, Saul. I mean, this guy was going nuts and getting worse. 
And it wasn't just a psychological thing, it was a spiritual thing because he allowed paranoia and pride to grip his heart, the jealousy of David to grip his heart, and he wanted nothing more than David gone. And it gripped him so badly that he was now destroying himself. Uh, there's an old um, Three Stooges episode, Larry, Moe, and Curly. Moe kept punching Curly in the chest. Bam, bam, ow, ow, don't do that, ow. So what Curly decided to do was to strap a, a stick of dynamite to his chest, and then when Moe hit him, then, then he would just blow up Moe. Makes a lot of sense, right? That's the self-destructive nature of revenge. We can do things that are ridiculous and they harm and hurt us, and not just us, but our relationship with the other person and our relationship with God too. All right, now I want to look at David's words uh, because David understands all this. He puts together the package. He's got a heart after God's. He's, he's believing in God. He's, he's a righteous young man. And now David shows us the way. And I want, I'm just going to, we're just going to look at his words, what he says. And in those words, we're going to find the answer. So David clips off a corner of Saul's robe. Saul leaves the cave unawares. And now, now this is really interesting. Saul leaves the cave. David has a little piece of Saul's robe. And now David feels terribly guilty. His heart is so sensitive to not taking revenge, he feels guilty for cutting off a corner of Saul's robe. David didn't touch Saul. He didn't kill him. He's not calling him names. He's not using sarcasm. He feels guilty for this tiny little thing. He cut off a corner. And he's even conscience-stricken about that. And so that's when he says these words, the Lord's the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. Doing such a thing, that means cutting off a corner of his robe. He feels guilty for this. And in addition to that, lay, or, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Pay attention to those words. They tell us a lot. Okay? Number one, David says, the Lord forbid. Who's David paying attention to? Who's the voice? that he's listening to more than all the voices, he's turned them all down except one. It's a great lesson for us in our lives. Each of us has voices in our lives, influences, okay? Not, I'm not talking about voices in our heads, but things that call us and speak to us and influence us. And we have to understand the importance of turning them down and turning God up which is what David is doing when he says, the Lord forbid, he's putting, he's putting God and God's word in charge. Then he refers to Saul as my master, that I should do such a thing to my master. He doesn't say my murderer. He doesn't say the biggest jerk and idiot on the face of the planet. He doesn't say someone who shouldn't be king anymore. He calls Saul, a guy who was acting poorly in all those ways, my master. So David is saying, Saul, you're still in charge in this kingdom. I, sure, I killed Goliath. Sure, I have a better head on my shoulders than you do. Sure, I have a heart of God, and you don't. But as far as I know from God, Saul, you're still in charge of me. You're my master, as unjust as you are. Uh, the, the third piece has to do with that, right? He refers to him, he's the anointed of the Lord. 
right? Anointed is a, is a Hebrew word that means chosen, right? So what is David saying? This is not my decision, but it's God's. Saul, you are still God's choice, and if you're God's choice, you're my choice. As much as I might disagree as a human being with God's choice, Saul, you're God's choice. I'm not going to harm you because I'm, then I'm harming what is God's. God has chosen you, Saul, until God tells me otherwise, you're king and I'm not. And then later, it's, it's really powerful, later, the, I'm not going to put up the rest of the verses, but uh, Saul, Saul then stops and David then goes out to talk to Saul and he calls him my father, a term of respect and endearment. He bows down to him, an action that shows humility and service. It's all I'm not done serving you. I'll play the harp again for you if you want. Just don't throw your spear at me. Right? He's, so David's approaching Saul, and at the end of the story, at the end of 1 Samuel 24, here's what happens. Saul's heart turns, and the mercy of God that David shows to Saul turns him and, and and Saul asks David to have more mercy on him. Saul affirms the kingship, the coming kingship of David, and actually says, when you become king, please have mercy on me and my family and forgive me for what I've done. See the power of mercy? That power of mercy that it had on Saul. All right, final point, and this is the biggest. Centuries later, David had a descendant. And that descendant of David, centuries later, was promised a throne, like David was. And that descendant who was promised a throne was persecuted, unjustly, just like David was. And that, that descendant who was promised a throne and was persecuted, his name is Jesus. And Jesus bowed down and spoke in terms of respect to his enemies, to Roman soldiers standing over him with a hammer ready to nail his hands with spikes to the cross. Our sins were there. Jesus humbled himself and bowed down even before us as he became a human being. And he bowed down and he, and he got low on the ground, even lower than greedy tax collectors and even lower than dirty prostitutes and even lower than his disciples who fled from him and betrayed him, that, that descendant got low, and he treated us with respect that our sins don't deserve. And he showed mercy on us so that he could spare us even as David spared Saul. That David, in his speech, laid out in a very calm and matter-of-fact, clear way his innocence, right? He told Saul, I'm not guilty of what you're thinking. Jesus declared his innocence after he died for, for our sins, and he rose from the dead. That resurrection is really declaring the innocence and perfection of Jesus to be the true, pure Son of God. And after he rose from the dead, Jesus did not gather his soldiers and make a trip to Pontius Pilate's palace and take his fist and club Pilate into dust. He didn't go to the homes of those Roman soldiers who pounded the spikes into his hands and make life miserable for them and their family. He didn't call them up and say, I will find you and I will kill you. 
He had mercy on them, and he had mercy on us. That was an example of Jesus being willing to lose the battle, but win the war. He lost the battle by being killed on the cross, but he won the war, the ultimate victory of God and his mercy. You and I can lose the battle, too, against our enemies and win the war. And we lose the battle and win the war as we're filled with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that, that he promised that is ours by faith. So when you must deal with your enemies, when you have those thoughts of injustice like I had in the bakery and they start bubbling up, remember, remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Remember the mercy that he shows you. God and his son Jesus spared all of us sinners so that we in turn can spare others and let the mercy of God win their hearts too. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this powerful story that you give to us of your ancestor, David, and of how he treated real injustice. We pray that as, as we're confronted with injustice in our lives and in our circles of influence at work, at home, at play, even here at church, that you would give us hearts like David that your word would lead our hearts and not our feelings, not our actions, not our sinful desires, but your word would lead us. And as your word leads us, Lord, we trust in your word. We trust that love is more powerful than judgment. We trust that forgiveness can work its way. And Lord, we pray for our enemies. Help us to love them like you would, like you do. In your name we pray. Amen.